Um, we are continuing our study this morning on forerunners of the faith, and uh, we're following along. If you have your workbook, we're following along in the workbook. We did not quite finish up lesson two last week. Uh, we left off on page 25 in that workbook. If you don't have the workbook, it's no problem. You don't need it. Uh, but if you do have it, uh, page 25 was where we left off. I'm just going to make a few quick comments about that, and then we're going to move on to lesson three, which starts on page 29. Uh, this morning, I was looking at <clears throat> was looking at uh, some of the news headlines. Uh, I tend to do that uh, in the morning just to kind of get my bearings and also to remind me of the need to pray for things in our world. And uh, this morning I was uh, <clears throat> looking through some of the news headlines, <clears throat> actually on Fox News. I do try and look at a number of different news websites uh, just to have a little bit of a balanced view of what's going on. But I was looking at the Fox News headlines this morning, and there was a headline about a letter that was being auctioned from a British pastor who died in 1912 in the Titanic disaster. And it caught my attention, and so I, I opened up the article. And it was an article about this pastor from London named John Harper, who was on the Titanic with his daughter and his sister. And he was actually coming across the Atlantic to preach in D.L. Moody's church in Chicago. And of course, the Titanic struck the iceberg, and two hours after striking the iceberg sank, but what was fascinating about this story of this man, John Harper, was that he got his daughter and his sister on a lifeboat, and then he himself gave away his life jacket to someone else, and he spent the final two hours of his life while the Titanic was sinking, preaching the gospel. And here I am reading Fox News. I don't normally do my devotions out of Fox News, but this morning it felt devotional, because even in the article there in Fox News, it said that he was preaching Acts 16.31, which is that great account from Paul's second missionary journey where he was in Philippi, and the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And here's this amazing story of this man going down with the ship, preaching the gospel, and I can't wait till we get to meet him in heaven and those who perhaps were converted even in the final hours of their life there on that ship as it sunk in the Atlantic. It kind of made me think even metaphorically about our world because every other headline on Fox News this morning made me feel like I'm on the Titanic. And I was reminded of the fact that our mission, whether it's geopolitical events halfway around the world in the Middle East, or whether it's the reality of the political situation even here in the United States, <clears throat> our world needs to hear the message of the gospel, and we need to be like John Harper, preaching that there is salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ for those who believe in him. 
And uh, I was reminded of that from the story of John Harper this morning. It also reminded me of why studying church history is so compelling, because when we see those examples of faithfulness in prior generations, when we see that courage and conviction in the lives of those who came before us, it motivates that same kind of conviction and courage in our own hearts. And my own evangelistic zeal was ignited this morning from reading about a man who died more than 100 years ago, and yet someone who I look forward to seeing one day surrounding the throne of Christ, along with all those who embrace that same message that there is salvation through the Lord Jesus. All right, so page 25, we left off at the end of last week. We were talking about the apostolic age. We were talking about the book of Acts. We made it all the way through the book of Acts, and we're just after the book of Acts. And of course, the book of Acts is important because it is a book of church history that's right there in your New Testament. And I like to remind my students at the seminary that church history is important enough that the Holy Spirit saw fit to include a book of it in your Bible, and that book is the book of Acts. And it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or you might even say the Acts of Jesus Christ through his Spirit in the first three decades after his crucifixion and resurrection, because Luke records in the book of Acts from about A.D. 30 to about A.D. 62, the initial decades of the history of the church. And then shortly after the book of Acts, around the year A.D. 64, there was that great fire in the city of Rome. Nero uses that as an excuse to persecute Christians. And in the five years between A.D. 64 and A.D. 68, when Nero dies, we have tremendous persecution. We believe that the Apostle Paul was beheaded during that time. The Apostle Peter crucified upside down during that time. And that persecution provides the, the historic backdrop for the letters of 2 Timothy, for the letters of First and Second Peter, and also for the book of Hebrews. What is all this persecution that's being talked about in those letters? It's the persecution of Nero against the Christians. Uh, that's right where we left off last week. The next big event in the first century that I wanted to mention is the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, A.D. 70, when it was actually in A.D. 66 that a group of Jewish rebels defied Rome and sort of took over Jerusalem. And then Rome dispatched a general who would later become an emperor. His name was Titus Vespasian. And Titus came with his army and arrived in AD 70 and actually destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, crushed the rebellion. A few of the rebels fled to Masada and by AD 73, they were killed as well. And that Jewish rebellion was squelched, was quenched by, by Roman armies. But one of the questions that sometimes comes up, and, and this ties into something that I had said last week and I wanted to circle back to, in Acts chapter 26, Paul stands before King Herod Agrippa II and gives his testimony, makes a defense. It's so compelling that Agrippa actually says to Paul, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. And I said last week, just put a mental uh, sticky note there, a mental thumbtack, because we were going to come back to that. And then we ran out of time and never came back to it. So here we go, closing the loop. 
In AD 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem, sometimes people wonder what happened to the church in Jerusalem when Jerusalem itself was besieged, the temple destroyed, and the rebellion crushed. The answer to that, according to early tradition, is that the Christians of Jerusalem had fled from Jerusalem long before Titus Vespasian and his armies arrived. The question is, where did they go? And the answer is that they found refuge in a town called Pella in the city or in the region of Idiomia, which is under the jurisdiction of Herod Agrippa II. So I find it fascinating that Paul stands trial before Herod Agrippa, probably around AD 58, and roughly a decade later, the Christians of Jerusalem are given refuge by that very king, largely, I think, because we see from Acts 26 that Herod Agrippa II was sympathetic to the Christian cause and probably was led to being sympathetic to the Christians because of Paul's witness in Acts chapter 26. So that's just kind of a cool connection from the book of Acts to what happened to the church of Jerusalem in AD 70. They had fled, they had found refuge, and all of that in God's providence from a pagan king, but a king who was sympathetic to Christianity because of the witness of Paul. Uh, also, sometime before AD 70, we know that the apostle John had gone up to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, the seven churches of Revelation are all churches from Asia Minor. He had gone there to minister, uh, probably in the church of Ephesus and in the surrounding churches. We don't know exactly why he left Jerusalem to go minister in Asia Minor, but it's possible that he did so because of the deaths of Peter and Paul. And so now John comes to fill in the leadership vacuum that's created with the heavenly home going of Peter and Paul. And John, we think, was there for the next three decades, for the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s of the first century, the Apostle John ministered in and around Ephesus. It would have been in the 80s that he wrote his three epistles for 2nd, 3rd John, and also the Gospel of John. And then in the 90s, under the reign of a Roman emperor named Domitian, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and while on Patmos, he received a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, gives us the content for the book of Revelation. And the seven churches that are listed there are all churches that would, would have been influenced by the Apostle John's ministry. That then brings us to lesson three. And <clears throat> I'm, I'm really excited about pushing off now from the familiar into the unfamiliar. Now, it's possible, of course, that some of you have done some study in church history, and if that's the case, that's wonderful. This will be somewhat familiar to you. But I found for most evangelical Christians, even Christians who attend great churches like Grace Community Church, after we get past the Apostle John, church history tends to be kind of a blank spot until at least the Reformation, but that's 1,400 years later. And I'm excited to have the opportunity to get to start to fill in some of the blanks. I feel like the dark ages are only dark because we've never gone in and turned on the lights. And it's a lot of fun to go with you on this journey of getting to meet some of the people who lived in that 
period of time, more than a thousand years between the Apostle John and the Protestant Reformation. The Apostle John was the last surviving apostle. He dies around the year 100, probably back in Ephesus after the death of Domitian. We believe he was released from his exile at Patmos, returned to Ephesus, and died of natural causes around the year 100. And with his death, the apostolic age comes to a close. So today we're going to talk about the disciples of the apostles. And I want to do so by starting with a verse that's very familiar, 2 Timothy 2.2. Because in 2 Timothy 2, and again, this is the last epistle that the apostle Paul ever wrote. It's probably just a few months before his execution, again, under the reign of Nero, probably around the year AD 67 or 68. And Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy at this point is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Normally, when we think about this verse, we think of it in a contemporary context of leadership development. Right? We need to set up some sort of structure in which the older generation is mentoring the younger generation so that that next generation can go out and raise up the generation after them. But for the purposes that we have this morning, I want us to think about this in its original context because it is really kind of fun to realize that we actually know who some of the faithful men were that Paul was instructing Timothy to raise up in the context of his church there in Ephesus. And then the, the principle, as it's applied to its original context, we actually see this borne out in church history. We have four generations of church leadership here. Paul, an apostle. Timothy, generation two. Faithful men, generation three. Others also, generation four. And I, I think there's this kind of concept, uh, especially among Protestant evangelicals, that after the Apostle John, church history kind of goes off of a cliff and immediately becomes Roman Catholic for the next 14 centuries before Martin Luther kind of rescues the church by attaching something to a door in Germany 503 years ago. Uh, but the reality is that would be an inaccurate understanding of what happened after the time of the apostles. The church did not immediately drop off of a cliff of heresy and false teaching. In fact, what we find is that what Paul instructs Timothy to do here is what the church did. And we're going to meet some of the faithful men and the others also that we find in those first few decades of post-apostolic church history. Okay. All right. This group is known. Um, and, and just to give you a big picture, again, if you want to reference the chart that's on page 19 of your workbook, that's sort of our big, I call it the mall map of church history. It's the directory. And uh, we've structured our understanding of church history or our uh, approach to church history using the metaphor of a building, four floors on our building. There's five rooms in each floor. Each room represents a century. 
We've spent some time in the first room of the first floor, that's apostolic church history, and we're going to now start to go into the second room, the second century of church history, but we're still on that first floor. That first floor is what's called patristic church history, patristic from a Greek word, patriarch, that means father. This is the age of the church fathers. And the church fathers that we're going to meet this morning are called the apostolic fathers. And I want to just make a quick comment about that term. First of all, that term does not imply some sort of Roman Catholic overtone. I know that the Roman Catholic Church refers to their priests as fathers. um, And also the Greek Orthodox refer to their church leaders as fathers, patriarchs, popes, fathers. Uh, But when we use the term church father, we're using it more in the sense of like the American founding fathers. So I want you to think of it more in that sense, that these are early leaders in the church in its early ages. And uh, some would say that the age of the church fathers encompasses the first 800 years of church history. For our purposes, we're going to limit it to the first 500 years of church history. But these are like the founding fathers of church history. Now, when we use the term apostolic father, these are not the fathers of the apostles, right? This is not Zebedee, the father of John. No, these are the disciples of the apostles. They are the church leaders who immediately came after the apostles. Uh, There were many more than just the eight individuals that I have listed up here, but these eight represent early Christian leaders immediately after the time of the apostles who wrote things and their writings have survived to the present. Okay, so early Christian leaders whose writings have survived to the present, there would be uh, eight of those individuals. And this morning, we're just going to quickly survey five of those eight, but you can see eight listed there. Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Barnabas of Alexandria, Papias of Hierapolis, Polycarp of Smyrna, and then the anonymous authors of the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the letter to Diognetus. But I'm really excited to share a little bit about these. We're going to look at five of them, starting with Clement of Rome. I'm really excited to share a little bit about these five individuals because I just think <clears throat> I just think it's so cool. And I, I don't have a better word for that. I've asked my kids, what's a better word than just calling it cool? And they said, you know, sick. And I'm like, ah, I don't think that's gonna work. So I just think it's I just think it's so cool that we have the opportunity to actually <clears throat> hear from uh, the opportunity to hear from some of the individuals who actually knew the apostles. And uh, forgive me for borrowing a 21st century concept of discipleship, but these are the guys who went to Starbucks with the apostles. And I just think that's cool to get to hear from them. Now, they're not authoritative. They're not the apostles. They didn't write with apostolic authority. But the fact that they were connected to the apostles means that, well, I just think they have insights that we should really be eager to hear about. And again, they're not authoritative. This is not scripture. We're now past the close of the canon, uh, but we're in a time period where we're still so close to the apostles that there hasn't been 
nearly as much time for error and false teaching to creep in. And what I think you're going to be really encouraged by is to realize that there really were faithful men in a 2 Timothy 2.2 sense who came after the apostles. One of those faithful men was Clement, Clement of Rome. So let me talk just a little bit about Clement. And one of the things that's unfortunate about Roman Catholicism, there's many things that are unfortunate about an apostate movement, but one of the things that's unfortunate is sort of the revision of history, including uh, a revision of the way that the uh, the pastors in the Church of Rome would have thought about themselves. According to Roman Catholicism, Peter was the first pastor of the Church of Rome. Now, we know that that's not actually true because Peter wasn't there when Paul wrote the book of Romans, and Paul mentions a number of church leaders in Romans chapter 16, and Peter's not one of them. So Peter was not the first pastor of the Church of Rome, but the Roman Catholic Church wants Peter to be the first pastor of the Church of Rome because they want him to be the first pope. Um, I say all of that to say that Clement was, if you take that view of things, Clement was the fourth pastor of the Church of Rome, which means that according to Roman Catholicism, Clement was the fourth pope. He wasn't the fourth pope, but I say that because it'll become significant in just a moment. So who was Clement? Clement was a pastor of the church in Rome in the 90s of the first century. Uh, so in the last decade of the first century. I mean, imagine this. While the Apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos writing the book of Revelation, Clement was the guy pastoring the church in Rome during that same time period. That's super cool to me. Now, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, there is a Clement mentioned by Paul. It's possible that this is the same Clement. We don't know that for sure, but it's interesting that there would be a possible connection there. Clement would have been a disciple of both Peter and Paul. Peter did minister in Rome before his death. Paul, of course, ministered in Rome as well, spending at least two years there under house arrest and having previously written a letter to the Romans. And we'll see even from Clement's writings that he was very familiar with the writings of the apostle Paul. Now, Clement himself, I mentioned earlier that these guys, these Apostolic fathers are those who had written letters. Uh, Clement wrote one letter that has survived, and he wrote that to the church in Corinth. And it's really interesting because if you read 1 Corinthians, which was written all the way back in the 50s of the first century, you find that the Corinthian church struggled with internal division and schism, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. And uh, Paul has to say, hey, guys, stop, knock it off. And it's interesting that four decades later, that was still a problem in the Corinthian congregation. Clement writes a letter to tell them, hey, stop the infighting that's taking place because you're giving the name of Christ a bad name because of all of the internal division that's taking place in your church. Now, some may say, well, um, Oh, I guess I don't have it on this slide. This, this letter, Clement's first epistle to the Corinthians or his first epistle, uh, some may ask, well, why is it called his first epistle if it's his only epistle? And that's because there's another document called Second Clement, which a long time ago people thought Clement wrote 
but modern scholarship has shown Clement did not write. And so second Clement wasn't really written by Clement, but first Clement is still called first Clement. Okay. <laughs> In case you're ever on Jeopardy, now you know. <laughs> I want to read a section from first Clement. This is from chapter 32, paragraph four. And I mentioned earlier that, again, according to the Roman Catholic uh, interpretation of history, Clement is the fourth pope. And I always find it kind of fun to share with Roman Catholics that I talk to about this, and I've had several conversations about Clement with Roman Catholics. I find it fun to point out that the fourth pope, much like the first pope, Peter, the fourth pope taught justification by grace through faith apart from works which means that he taught sola fide. He taught an evangelical understanding of the gospel. He has one of the clearest statements of salvation by grace through faith alone in early church history. And it's right here in chapter 32, paragraph four. Look at what he says. He says, and so we Christians, having been called through God's will in Christ Jesus, we are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety of works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but we are justified through faith, whereby the Almighty God has justified all men who have been from the beginning to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that because Clement goes out of his way to say, gives actually five five categories by which we are not justified. We're not justified by ourselves, by our wisdom, by our understanding, by the piety of our works, or by the holiness of our own hearts. Those things do not justify us. What justifies us is faith in Christ. So the fourth pope was a Protestant, and I love to point that out. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that Clement was influenced by the Apostle Paul, and you actually see in Clement's first epistle some reflections of the book of Romans, which was understandable because the book of Romans is something that Clement would have been very familiar with. And you'll remember in Romans chapters 1 through 5, it's all about the fact that we're justified by grace through faith apart from works. And then Romans chapter 6 starts by asking the question, does that mean that we should sin so that grace may abound, and the answer is, may it never be. Clement, in the very next paragraph of his letter, follows Paul's uh, thinking there. I just want to show this to you because I think it's really cool. He says this. He says, what then must we do, brethren? In light of the fact that our works don't justify us, does that mean that we can just live however we want? Must we idly abstain from doing good and forsake love? May the master never allow this. May it never be. May the master never allow this to befall us at, in the least, but let us hasten with urgency and zeal to accomplish every good work. And that is exactly how Protestants understand the gospel, how evangelicals understand the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith apart from works. But even though we're saved by faith alone, saving faith is never alone because the fruit of our salvation is always seen in a desire to obey the Lord Jesus. So how fun it is to find in one of the disciples of Paul, the teaching of Paul clarified in such a vivid way. Now, I'd love to say more about Clement, but we're going to move on. Uh, Clement did uh, 
live for Christ even to the moment of death and was executed uh, under the reign probably of Trajan, the emperor. And you can see there from the artist's rendition that he was uh, drowned. Uh, now, much like last week, I pointed out some of the flaws in the art itself. Uh, this also has a number of historical inaccuracies. Uh, Clement would not have been dressed as a medieval pope when he was executed. He did not have a birthday cake on top of his head. Also, you'll notice that uh, the artist here is using what's called forced perspective to try and give some sort of dimension to the painting. And uh, so that's why Clement and some of the figures in the front of the boat look like giants compared to some of the figures farther back. The real point is this, Clement understood the gospel, he articulated the gospel, and he was willing to die for the gospel. And that should be encouraging to us because we see faithful men who were willing to teach others also. The next individual in our list, again, we're going to look at five. So this is number two of five, Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch and some quick things about Ignatius. <clears throat> Ignatius is not mentioned in the book of Acts. However, according to uh, fifth century tradition, he was actually installed as the pastor of the church in Antioch through the instruction of the apostle Peter. We don't know if that actually happened or not, but certainly there would have been a close connection between, again, the apostles and those who came after them. This Antioch is the church of Acts chapter 11. So Acts chapter 11, the first predominantly Gentile church, the church in Antioch, here after Paul and Barnabas were its pastors. And then we, have, we know that Peter was in Antioch for a while. Now we're past the apostolic age. Ignatius is the first uh, post-apostolic pastor that we know about in the church there in Antioch. We know also that he was connected to the apostle John. He was a friend of Polycarp, who we'll meet here in just a second. And Ignatius wrote seven letters that have survived. Um, here you can see uh, a map uh, where Antioch is located. Uh, he was martyred in Rome around the year 115, 117, right in there. And uh, he was actually martyred by being um, <clears throat> delivered alive to wild beasts. So he was uh, mauled by wild animals. Uh, this was before the Colosseum. This was in a, a place in Rome called the Circus Maximus. Uh, but the execution of Christians, very much a real thing in the early second century. I did want to read just one paragraph from one letter that uh, Ignatius wrote. <clears throat> this is in his letter to the Magnesians. I largely include this just because it's fun to say Magnesians. But uh, his letter to the Magnesians, no, the real reason I include this is because uh, Ignatius in this particular paragraph shows that the or he explains the reason why Christians were meeting on the first day of the week, why they were meeting on Sunday. He says, Christians regulate their calendar by the Lord's day, the day too on which our Lord rose, our life rose by his power. So Sunday is the day on which we meet because that's the day which, on which Jesus rose from the dead. And if to this mystery we owe our faith and because of it submit to sufferings to prove ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, our only teacher, how then can we possibly live apart from him? 
So just a wonderful testimony, A, to the historicity of the resurrection, and B, to the reason why Christians, and we know even from the book of Acts that they were meeting on Sunday, but here we have an early post-apostolic witness to that same reality. We meet on Sundays. Why? When the Jewish people met on Saturdays, why do Christians meet on Sundays? Because Sunday is the day on which the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Um, one other just really quick comment about Ignatius, uh, because this will become important later. Ignatius was very concerned about the potential of division within local churches. And as a result, Ignatius argued that every local church should only have one senior pastor, one senior pastor, a group of elders, and then deacons. And Ignatius actually used a biblical term to describe that senior pastor, and that biblical term was bishop or episkopos. In the New Testament, an episkopos, bishop, and a presbyteros, elder, are one and the same. But starting with Ignatius in church history, we start to have a bishop being seen as the senior pastor and a presbyteros being seen as just one of the elders. And that'll become important later because uh, as the church develops, that superstructure will be expanded and it'll get more and more unbiblical, or maybe a better way to say that is less and less biblical. Um, so I mentioned that only as a sort of a, a heads up that down the road, we're going to start to have bishops and archbishops. And it's like, what, where did all of this start? It actually started all the way back in the second generation of church leaders uh, out of good motives. How do we keep local churches from being divided? Well, they should have one senior pastor and multiple elders. And honestly, that's very similar to the model that we have here at Grace Church. We have a teaching pastor, and then we have a group of elders. Moving on. Next individual, oh, there's the, a picture of Ignatius being martyred. And I do think it's, I don't take lightly the fact that these men gave their lives for the gospel. It bears witness to the authenticity of their faithfulness that they were faithful even unto death. The next individual on our list is Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp. Polycarp is a name that actually, when you see it, it looks like it means many fish. That's not what it means. Uh, it means fruitful. And I actually love that because Polycarp was a very fruitful follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, one letter that he wrote survives. It's his letter to the Philippians. And one of the other significant things about Polycarp is that there was an early written record of his martyrdom. It's actually the earliest surviving record of a Christian martyrdom that we have. And so it's, it's fascinating to read what early believers were thinking about when those who had been faithful in their midst were um, executed for their faith in Christ. Uh, in your workbook, I have a number of uh, selections from Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. I have them here in the, uh, in the PowerPoint. There you can see where Smyrna is. It's right near Ephesus. It's actually one of the seven churches that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's one of the faithful churches, which is very 
cool to, to know that Polycarp was likely there in Smyrna around the time when Paul wrote that, maybe just a little bit after, but to know who one of the pastors of that faithful church from the book of Revelation, uh, to know who that is, is just really neat. Um, I have several selections in your workbook. I'm not going to read all of those this morning for the sake of time, even though I have them in the PowerPoint, we'll skip past them. But I did want to read this first one because, I, again, I want you to see that the gospel is intact in this generation of early Christian leaders. We saw that with Clement. Look at it here with Polycarp. This is right at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. He says, I rejoiced that the steadfast root of your faith which was known from ancient times abides until now and bears fruit unto our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured to face even death for our sins, whom God raised, having loosed the pangs of Hades, on whom through you, excuse me, on whom, though you have not seen him, you believe with joy unutterable and full of glory, unto which joy many desire to enter in, for as much as you know that it is by grace you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, you can see an allusion there to 1 Peter chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. And you can see an allusion to Ephesians chapter 2, which of course makes sense. Smyrna was one of the churches right near Ephesus. The book of Ephesians would have been something Polycarp was familiar with. And isn't it cool to see here in Smyrna in the second century, the, the pastor of that church saying, hey, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, these other quotes, which I won't read, just emphasize the lordship of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, and then the authority of the word of Christ in chapter 6, the need to suffer even unto death to be faithful in persecution in chapter 8, and also in chapter 10. And, and I, again, you have those citations, those quotes in your workbook. The reason I include those is because going all the way back to what we talked about on week one, I want you to see that in this second generation, there is still a commitment to the three core pillars of biblical orthodoxy. They're committed to the authority and supremacy of scripture. They're committed to the uh, sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, that we're saved by grace through faith, and they're committed to the sanctity of worship, that we worship Jesus Christ as God, because he is God. We worship God alone, and we do not uh, worship or follow idols. Now, this is a line drawing that comes all the way from the 16th century, a woodcut of the martyrdom of Polycarp. And I want to just quickly tell this story. Um, because it's a famous story from church history, and it's a wonderful story. Polycarp uh, was ministering in Smyrna for many decades, around the year 155. So now we're midway through the second century. Persecution broke out in the city of Smyrna, and Roman authorities came to arrest Polycarp because he was the pastor of the church. In a really, and again, all of this comes from that account, the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a very early account of a Christian's martyrdom. When the Roman soldiers arrived, Polycarp invited them in, asked them if he could have a little bit of time to pray, and offered them dinner, which is just an amazing act of hospitality, and they took him up on the offer. So while they are eating dinner at his house, they're there to arrest him, he goes upstairs and prays. 
They then take him into custody. They bring him before the Roman governor. The Roman governor says, look, you're an old man. Take, you know, take thought to your old age, renounce Christ, and I'll, I'll let you go. I'll release you. And then Polycarp famously says, 80 and six years have I served him and he has never done me any injury. How then could I now deny my master and king? And with those words, of course, Polycarp seals his guilt in the eyes of the Roman governor, but in the eyes of God seals his testimony as one of the faithful witnesses to Christ. He's brought out into an arena that's full of angry pagans. They're angry at him because the people of Smyrna are no longer worshiping the pagan idols. They're all becoming Christians. And so he's seen as a threat. And so they, they say he has to be killed. Um, the, the herald goes out into the, into the arena and announces three times that Polycarp has declared that he is a Christian. They cry for his blood and he's brought out. Once again, the proconsul is begging him, you know, hey, renounce Christ. He actually uses the word repentance. Repent from Christ. Turn away from Christ. And uh, he says, aren't you worried about the flames that are about to consume you? And Polycarp says to the governor, he says, you need to be far more worried about the eternal flames of hell. And actually uses it as a gospel opportunity. And he refuses to renounce Christ and he's burned at the stake there in the arena for, for Christ. Um, according to the tradition, and this may be more legend than history, but it is part of the tradition, the flames didn't do anything to Polycarp. And so a Roman soldier actually had to stab him through the heart in order to send him on his way to eternal glory. Um, and that's what's depicted in the woodcut that you see up there on the screen. So Polycarp of Smyrna, fruitful and faithful even in death. This is just a map that gives you an idea of kind of where these different authors were writing from. We have two more that I want to talk about just real quickly. Both of these are anonymous authors. The anonymous author of the Didache, Didache means teaching. The word didactic is uh, an English word that we get from the same Word The Didache is the teaching of the 12 apostles. It's intended to be a summary of apostolic teaching. Now, it wasn't actually written by an apostle, which is why it's not in your New Testament, but it was intended to be sort of a, a summary of what the apostles taught. And we think that it was used as kind of a, a manual of early Christian ethics that was used to instruct new believers, maybe even those who are preparing for baptism, as to what Christianity was all about. So here at Grace Church, if you want to be baptized, you go to the upper room and they tell you what the Christian uh, faith is all about. Make sure that you understand and are able to affirm that you believe having full knowledge of what you are embracing. The Didache, we think, served a similar function in the late first, early second century. Uh, it actually starts by depicting two ways it uses kind of the, the language of Proverbs or the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that there is a broad way that leads to death, but there's a narrow way that leads to life. And it explains the Christian life using that metaphor of the narrow way. And I want to read just a, two paragraphs out of the Didache or two, two short chapters. Um, 
because I think you'll find this fascinating. There are two paths, one of life and one of death, and the difference is great between the two paths. Now, the path of life is this. First, you shall love the God who made you, your neighbor as yourself, and all things that you would not want done to you, do not do to another. So it's the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, and then the golden rule. And then if we look at chapter two, he starts to apply how this all fits. The second commandment of the teaching is this, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt youth, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not use soothsaying, you shall not practice sorcery. And then notice this, you shall not kill a child by abortion, neither shall you slay it when it is born, and you shall not covet the goods of your neighbor. So he's taking the second half of the Ten Commandments, which of course, Jesus summarized as the second great commandment, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That's the golden rule or the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The author of the Didache takes that, applies that through the second half of the 10 commandments. I find it fascinating that all the way back in the late first century, early second century, we see a Christian author saying abortion is a form of murder and is prohibited by the Ten Commandments. And so the pro-life movement, sometimes we think the pro-life movement has been associated with evangelicalism only since the 1980s or 1970s. The reality is it goes all the way back through Christian history. So I wanted to share that with you because I, I find it fascinating. All right, the last in our group of five is the anonymous author of the letter to Diognetus. And I, I want to end with this one because the epistle to Diognetus or the letter to Diognetus was written to an unbelieving man named Diognetus. So Diognetus is an unbeliever and the author who never identifies himself except as a disciple of Jesus Christ shares the gospel with him. And again, this is mid second century, probably around the year 150 or so. I just want you to hear how clear the gospel is in this letter, because I want you to be encouraged, again, that there are early Christian leaders who were faithful men in that 2 Timothy 2-2 sense. And as he does this, he explains that both forgiveness from sin and justification, the righteousness that's given to us, both of those are available, not on account of our works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So let me read just a couple of sections from the letter to Diognetus. And remember, this is, this is not Martin Luther. This is not the Reformation. This is way before any of that. This is in the second century of church history, but it sounds like the Reformation. And when our iniquity had been fully accomplished and it had been made perfectly manifest that punishment and death were expected as its recompense and the season came which God had ordained when henceforth he should manifest his goodness and power Oh, the exceeding great kindness and love of God. He hated us not, neither rejected us, nor bore us malice, but was long-suffering and patient, and in pity for us, took upon himself our sins, and himself parted with his own son as a ransom for us, the holy for the lawless, the guileless for the evil, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal, for what else but his righteousness would have covered our sins? 
In whom was it possible for us lawless and ungodly men to have been justified save only in the Son of God? And then he underlined this part because he thought it was important. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the inscrutable creation. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the iniquity of many should be concealed in one righteous man and the righteousness of one should justify many that are iniquitous. Then he says this, this is the last slide in this section. Having then in the former time demonstrated the inability of our nature to obtain life. In other words, we're completely unable. And having now revealed a savior able to save even creatures which have no ability, he willed that for both reasons, we should believe in his goodness and should regard him as nurse, father, teacher, counselor, physician, mind, light, honor, glory, strength, and life. That is amazing. That's just a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel and the reality that we as sinners were utterly unworthy, that God took the initiative, that he made it possible through the death of his son, that our penalty would be paid on the cross so that we might be forgiven. And then he raised him from the dead as proof that he had accepted his sacrifice and he has imputed or reckoned or accounted the righteousness of his son to our account. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what Martin Luther would call the great exchange, that Jesus takes my sin and I receive his righteousness and I did nothing to deserve that. But this isn't from a 16th century reformer. This is from a 2nd century Christian who's just articulating the gospel to an unbelieving man who desperately needs it. I know I've used the word cool like 50 times this morning, but that's cool. All right, this gives you a little bit of a timeline just so you can kind of orient yourself You can see on this timeline, there's New Testament events all the way through the book of Acts. And then those New Testament events just move right into this post-apostolic period. And that post-apostolic period includes Clement pastoring in Rome, Ignatius pastoring in Antioch, Polycarp pastoring in Smyrna, the Didache being written around the end of the first century, and the anonymous epistle to Diognetus being written probably in the mid-second century. Okay, just some final thoughts, and then we'll land the plane for this morning. The, The main thing I want you to take away from a lesson like this is not to remember all the specific names of the people, because that might be difficult unless you're really committed to learning the material. But that's not really the point. The point is for you to be encouraged that 2 Timothy 2.2 stands not just as a contemporary paradigm for leadership development, but rather actually represents the history of what happened. That the apostles entrusted the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to their disciples, who entrusted it to faithful men, who were able to teach others also. And really the study of church history is the study of the chain of those faithful men in generation after generation after generation, men and women believers in churches who were faithful to entrust 
the truth to the next generation. And what something like this compels my own heart to do, and I hope yours as well, is to commit ourselves to be faithful in our generation, that the things that have been entrusted to us, the sanctity of the worship of God, the sufficiency of the work of God in salvation and the supremacy of his word as our authority for life and godliness, that we would entrust those things to our children and to the others in our world, our sphere of influence. Again, coming full circle, much like John Harper on the Titanic, society may indeed have hit an iceberg. It may be going down. <laughs> Let's preach the gospel and live faithfully so that we might honor Christ to the end. In the words of Harry Walls, can I hear an amen? amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study this material this morning. We do ask that we would be faithful by your grace and for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.